Scripture reading is found in Psalms chapter 34, verses 7, 8, and 13. Psalms chapter 34, verses 7, 8, and 13. It reads, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, and delivereth them. O taste and see that the Lord is good, Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Verse 13, keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Last time we talked about this, we were looking at every crutch removed. And we saw how in David's life, everything was quickly becoming unraveled. And how he entered into one of the deepest and longest and darkest valleys perhaps of his entire life, and how he went from the highest pinnacle of popularity to literally running for his life, and in depression and despair. And we talked about how every crutch in his life was removed. He lost his job and financial security. He lost his wife. He was separated from his spiritual, spiritual mentor, uh, his closest friend, Jonathan, they couldn't be uh, in each other's company either. And so all of these systems of support for David were being taken away. And so that's what we looked at last time. And as part of that, we briefly mentioned how in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, David flees to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, in fear and desperation and we mentioned how he lies to the priest. And that is something that I want to revisit this morning. And this message I've entitled, How to Lie to Your Pastor. And we recognize at this point that David's strength was running very low. His courage was thin. Uh, he had never before faced so much loss in close succession again and again and again, so much heartache, uh, so much fear for his own existence, for his own life. And so fear really became the driving emotion for David. And so David is on the run, and he runs here to Nob. And so while we revisit that portion of this story and really look at it, last time we didn't look at it, we just mentioned it, but I think there's some important points for us there. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And we'll begin just by reading the first verse. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 21, beginning there in verse 1. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version. And there we read, Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? So let's pause right there. Who is Ahimelech? Well, we know he is the priest. We also know he is Samuel's mentor. So we could essentially say here is David's mentor's mentor. We might think of him today as a giant of the faith. 
Are there any giants of the faith in your life? Someone you enjoy listening to on a regular basis when any time they're in town you want to go hear them speak or maybe they've since passed away but their books still speak to you. Here we have a giant of the faith. Here is where David has come and where is he? He's in Nob, this little village between Jerusalem and Gibeah. Years earlier the tabernacle had been taken there after a devastating battle at Shiloh and so at this point in time Nob is the center, the heart of all of Israel's worship. That's where the sanctuary is. And so in David's panic, he arrives at the sanctuary at Nob, and he's, I imagine, quite breathless, weak from hunger. And we notice right off the back that Ahimelech is afraid. He is bewildered. He's literally shaken. And why would he be shaken? Because high-profile leaders, such as David, Don't travel alone or ever look so desperate. David's been sent out on multiple missions and he always has an entourage. He always has his troops, his forces. Here he is alone, hungry, desperate. What's going on? And Ahimelech also knows that such figures like David are politically sensitive matters and could essentially put one's life on the line if you enter in to a situation that maybe you shouldn't enter into. Is David in trouble with Saul? Certainly he's heard rumors. Is it safe for me to get involved, he might think? Should I help him? And in what way? And it's in verse 2 we see David makes up a story. Why? Well, perhaps it's because he's prideful. He doesn't want to admit to this spiritual giant that he's in fact desperate. Or we could look at it another way. Perhaps he simply wants to protect Ahimelech so he doesn't have to get involved. Whatever the reason, David makes up a story and we read about it in verse 2. So David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business which I sent you or what I have commanded you. I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Here is one of the first downward steps in David's slide from faith to fear. And what is it centered in? Lying. David tells this spiritual mentor a bold-faced lie. It's just simply not true. And why would he do that? Well, it seems to be the norm as this whole narrative expands. Saul had lied to David concerning his first daughter in marriage. You remember that. The king's servants had lied to David when they communicated that the king was delighted in David. His own wife, Michael, daughter number two, had lied for him so that he could escape and then turn around and lied against David to protect herself and her own life. And then there's Jonathan. Jonathan himself had lied when Saul had asked, why is David not at the dinner table? Oh, he asked to be excused, to go sacrifice with his family. Not so wasn't true never happened and so David here is surrounded by falsehood by lying 
But after all, we could say, desperate times call for desperate measures. Or we could also say, the end justifies the means, doesn't it? So in fear, in desperation, David is seen lying to his pastor. The title, how do you do it? It's pretty simple. You just make up a story. That's the thing about lies. They're like feathers in the wind. Once blown away, you can never retrieve them again. That's the thing about lies. Once a lying tongue is unleashed, some falsehood, we cannot halt the consequences of that falsehood, can we? And so David seems to think this is all quite innocent. This isn't going to have any repercussions. It's not a big deal. Something we oftentimes call a little white lie, right? This isn't going to hurt anyone. It's none of their business or whatever we might tell ourselves. And so he thinks that this will just be a little blip on the radar of the story. But then we read, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. Do you ever feel safe in that little phrase? I'm going to tell you a secret, but don't tell anyone. I'm going to tell you a lie, but don't tell anyone because it's very serious that you don't tell. I'm going to be immoral and I'm going to bank on the fact that you will be. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. And he thinks that he'll get away with all this. But look at verse 3. Now, therefore, what you have on hand, give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. Verse 4 is what I'm really trying to get at. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is, a ho- is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy. And the bread is, in effect, common. Even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. And so the priest gave him holy bread. For there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. So one lie leads to another lie, and more lies about his men, and all these other things. But eventually he gets the bread that he needs for his nourishment. Is he going to get away with it? Verse 7 Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. Just lie again. So the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. Verse 10, then David arose and fled. And Doeg sees it all go down. How does it look? to one that is loyal to Saul. How does it look? Giving David the holy bread? Giving David Goliath's sword? I'll tell you how it looks. 
It looks exactly like Ahimelech is an accomplice, that he is aiding a fugitive. And if we turn over to chapter 22, we read the rest of the story, and it's not a good ending. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 9, Then answered Doag the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse, that's David, going to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And so Saul sends for Ahimelech. And he says in verse 13, Why have you conspired against me? And of course he claims his innocence. But Saul wouldn't have anything to do with it. No possible explanation would be acceptable. And so he orders that he be killed. Verse 16, and the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, and you and all of your father's house. And then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And because they knew when he fled, he did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. This is serious. Verse 18, and the king said to Doag, you turn and kill the priests. So Doag the Edomite turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. And more than that, verse 19, also Nob, the city of the priest, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys, sheep, with the edge of the sword. Have mercy. What Saul failed to do to the Amalekites, he's now doing to his own people. And all because one lie. And at that time, David didn't see the harm in it of just telling one lie. And it seemed to meet the immediate need very well. But friends, it had disastrous effects. His apparently harmless tale indirectly caused the death of 85 of the Lord's priests and their families, as well as the whole village, all because of one lie. How do you think David felt after he received the news? I imagine David would have done anything, anything to take that lie back. But like feathers in the wind, they're gone. It's too late. It's no longer under his control. But the diabolical fruits of his lie, of your lie, of my lie, Continue on. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 456, says this, Had the facts been plainly stated, Ahimelech would have known what course to pursue to preserve his life. He may have thought he was doing the priest a favor but by not getting him involved, but when David lied to Ahimelech, he was robbing him of making a responsible, intelligent choice, and he ultimately was taking matters into his own hands rather than let God be in charge. Isn't that what we do when we lie? 
I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to wiggle my way out, and I can do it underneath a lie, and no one will ever know. Friends, that's been the lie since the very beginning. Continuing on, it says, God requires the truthfulness, that truthfulness shall mark his people even in the greatest peril. It doesn't say except for in the greatest peril. Friends, no experience in life justifies falsehood. Even the greatest peril we can imagine doesn't justify it. And such absolute integrity demands incredible faith and complete trust in God. And that's what God wants from us. Well, but if I'm saving the life of others. Friends, how are God's people described at the end of time? Revelation 12, verse 11, it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, that's Jesus, and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. It doesn't say they lied so they didn't have to die. They said, no, integrity matters more than my very life. Trusting God matters more than my very life. I'm going to be a man, a woman of integrity. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I'm not going to assume that God has no way out. He has a thousand ways by which you know nothing. Revelation 2, verse 10, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Friends, in Scripture, life is not the ultimate value. Honoring God is. Truthfulness honors God. And I believe by God's grace, God's end-time people will display impeccable and unquestionable integrity, even amid great peril of life and fortune. No, no lie lurks on the mouths of those who follow the Lamb. Look at how the 144,000 are described here in Revelation 14, verse 5. In their mouth was found what? No deceit. Rather, they imitate Christ's truthfulness. For how is Christ described? Revelation 19, 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true again revelation chapter 3 verse 14 and to the angel of the church of the laodiceans write these things says the amen the faithful and true witness friends the people of god will reflect him in both word and action and in fact the important contrast in this great controversy that we find ourselves is who is telling the truth I mean, all the way up in heaven, ages ago, it all started with a lie that God does not have your best interest at heart. I do. And he brought it down to earth. How? With a lie. God's not telling you the truth. I am. Yet we toy around with this lying thing and think it's not really that big a deal. It's a huge deal. Truth matters. And the big question in this great controversy is who's telling you the truth? And let's face it, truth is the foundation of all relationships. Community requires openness and honesty. No genuine community can exist between falsehood and deception. Any relationship that you know of that is based on lies will not last long. 
It's a matter of time. But you can be sure, friends, that Jesus is always transparent. Jesus is always truthful. And for the follower of Christ, we too need to be transparent and truthful. Lying is not an option. The Gestapo came unexpectedly to the home where Betsy and Corey were hiding fugitive Jews that they were keeping in their home. They all jumped at the sudden pounding on the door. Probably more banging. Sent terrors through everyone seen at the dining room table with them, trying to eat supper. Calmly, without making too much noise, they try and lift the kitchen table, move it to the side, roll up the rug, open the trap door, and go down inside with their plates and their silverware. We can't have all this evidence on the table. Roll the rug back. Try and put the table back. As Corey calmly goes to the door. Finally, the doors swung open. They come charging in. They ransack the place. They look all over to find the Jews that they know are there. Finally, they've come up empty-handed, and they come to Betsy. Where are you hiding the Jews? I know that they're here. Don't lie to me. Tell me the truth. After a long pause, Betsy says, they're under the kitchen table. He doesn't take her serious. He thinks she's trying to be funny. Don't be cute with me. Where are you hiding them? I told you, they're under the kitchen table. And she points. You're wasting my time. And he charges out and leaves altogether. Later, Corey says, Betsy, what were you thinking? What were you doing? That could have given us away entirely. And she says, no, I will not lie. I will tell the truth. I will not take matters into my own hands. I will allow God to be God and let him be in charge of the result. Is God able? Does God rely on a lie from a human being? But we do these mental gymnastics to think that somehow this is what we have to do. That somehow it's not safe to trust God with the truth. And that was David's challenge, to trust God with the truth, to trust God to be in control of his situation, to trust God to protect and to deliver him. It's another interesting piece of David's visit to Nob because he asks for, do you have a spear or a sword? And he says, the only one around is Goliath's sword. Think about it. Why did they keep Goliath's sword? Was it not a symbol? A reminder of the power of God over every giant that anyone could ever possibly face? That's why they kept the sword. And I kind of like, no picture gets it perfect, but I kind of like this picture better because it shows this huge sword that only a giant could wield. And here David is asking for it as a means for his own safety. Think about that. How well did the weapon do to deliver the giant? 
How did it do? It didn't. The weapon did not deliver the giant. And so what makes David think it will help him now? Sadly, David is not trusting in God like he did before. Do you remember what he told the giant? Let's go back and review. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45. He says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. The Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. That's David the lad. But somehow he forgot. In the midst of his desperate situation and running for fear, he forgot that the battle is the Lord's. You don't lie your way out of it. You don't outfox or outsmart or outthink or out. No, you trust in the Lord. You're back here at Nob, fearful, frazzled, overwhelmed, afraid. David has lost sight of God, who's been with him during his encounters with the bear and the lion and the giant, and now carried both the sword and the mental attitude of Goliath. And it's here at Nob that David loses some of that beauty of spirit and transparency of the character we've come to love in David. And so here we're reminded that inspiration does not present David as some moral model to copy. David's isn't an ideal life. It's an actual life. But despite everything, the beautiful part of this story is God doesn't let him go. And thankfully, David turns his face back to God. Volume four of the testimonies, we find this quotation on page 12. It says, the pen of inspiration, true to its task, tells of the sins that overcame Noah, Lot, Moses, Abraham, David, and Solomon, and that even Elijah's strong spirit sank under temptation during his fearful trial. Jonah's disobedience and Israel's idolatry are faithfully recorded. Peter's denial of Christ, the sharp contention of Paul and Barnabas, the failings and infirmities of the prophets and apostles are all laid bare by the Holy Ghost who lifts the veil from the human heart. There before us lie the lives of the believers with all their faults and follies which are intended as a lesson to all the generations following them. If they had been without foible, they would have been more than human, and our sinful natures would despair of ever reaching such a point of excellence. But seeing where they struggled and fell, where they took heart again and conquered through the grace of God, we are encouraged and led to press over the obstacles that degenerate nature places in our way. End quote. People can succumb to unethical behavior, especially when their faith is on the run. In the heat of the def desperate attempt to escape, it can be too easy to reason the end justifies the means. In times of fear, truth and truthfulness can be the first to go. 
But truthfulness and passion for God are inseparably linked. Have you ever lost your perspective? Have you ever forgotten God's promises to provide for you? Have you ever taken matters into your own hands and made a mess of things, hurt other people along the way, caused innocent people to suffer, brought reproach on the name of Christ? Starts with a little white lie, then a bold-faced lie, and before long we have moved from telling lies to living them. But thankfully, it wasn't long before David realized his wrong. I have to take you to Psalm 34 before we divide up here. Psalm 34 in my Bible, it says, A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, not Ahimelech, who drove him away and he departed. So that story follows right on the heels of the one we just studied, and then he's in the cave of Adullam. We looked at that last time, and it's there in this cave. But notice some of what David wrote. You could read the whole thing at home, but beginning verse four, it says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. Verse 6, this poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Skipping down to verse 13. I imagine he is lamenting over what he's done. He says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Don't do it. Trust in the Lord. But then verse 17, it says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit or it might say crushed in spirit. Verse 19, many are the affliction of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So this morning I want to ask you, how does your life measure up on the truth scale? Have you learned to trust God in every and all circumstances? Have you made some mistakes? Like David, have you learned from your mistakes? And today would be a perfect time to confess your faults and let Jesus forgive you of your sins, to wash away your mistakes, to cleanse you from the times you have not been in every respect truthful. It was the bread of the Old Testament sanctuary, the holy bread. If you have the New Living Translation, it says the bread of presence. It symbolizes God's everlasting covenant with his people, his presence with his people. David asked for five loaves. Later it would be five loaves that would feed the 5,000. The bread of presence reminded God's people of the pledge of his provision, of his presence, which at this point in David's life, David needed to be reminded of God's provision and his presence. And so I believe this bread was supplied to him not just to subside his physical hunger, but it was meant to be a reminder 
David, I'm with you. I will carry you through. I will provide for you. I will be your provision. I will be your bread of presence. And you might say, well, how do we know that's what it symbolizes? I think we can, we won't take the time to go to Matthew chapter 12, but that's where Jesus refers to this very story. Do you remember that? And he refers to David eating the showbread that was not lawful for him to eat, but only the priests. But just three verses later, Jesus himself would say, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Even in David's despicable lie, Christ is focused on mercy and not condemnation. And we're all guilty. We've all lied. We've all taken matters into our own hands. We've all dishonored God in big and small ways. Contemplate again what it means that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Aren't you glad for the mercy of Jesus Christ? Aren't you glad for his blood that was shed for you and for me? David was guilty, absolutely guilty, but God patiently bore with David and restored him unto himself, and today he wants that for you and me too.